market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. The podcast is now officially worth $150 a tonne. I'm Scott Phillips and with me, as always, the doctor is in the house, Dr. Nirban Mahanti. How are you, buddy? Good day, Captain. I'm very, very good. It's nice and sunny. Isn't it? The weather is beautiful. The weather is beautiful. Sorry if it's not sunny and and wonderful where you are, but uh, we've got low to mid-20s, the sun's out, the sky is about as blue as it gets. That really kind of deep cornflower blue color is just lovely. So, hard hard, and look, it's been a good week. The ASX, again, we're recording this on a Thursday morning as we always do, the 10th of December. The ASX has been up for seven straight days. We're up 3% for the month on the back of the best month in, was it 40 odd years, 30 something years in November? Uh, it's hard to be unhappy, isn't it? Well, I, I can always be unhappy <laughs> because if it's up for so, you know, so much or so yep. long, yep. that's going to be down. There is. Oh, the next I step see. is down, I right? I say the old main reversion. I, that's always the risk, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an optimist. But you know what I'm happiest? I'm happiest when everyone else is pessimistic for exactly that reason. You think, you know what? I like being optimist. When everyone, when everyone you know, during March and April, I wasn't really happy to see my portfolio down, but I was feeling like it's like there's so much upside here. I feel really good being optimistic. When the, when the, as you say, when the, when the tide's already in, I'm like, well, I'm still optimistic for the long term, but I want people to realize that, you know, as you say, when, when things are high, there's every chance that uh, the next move could be down, which is not a prediction. Of course, we don't do that, but uh, it's always a risk, right? No, that's always the risk. All right. Mate, uh, speaking of $150 a ton as I open, we are going to talk about iron ore hitting a, a phenomenally large number. We'll talk a little bit about that. We'll talk about some of the good macro news for the economy. We'll talk about, well, lots of billions of dollars today. We've got a $5 billion bid from a super fund. We've got a $78 billion IPO. We've got another $40-odd billion potential IPO. And, of course, we're going to talk about the possibility, maybe even probability, Good old Facebook gets broken up by the regulators and what that might mean for the rest of the tech sector as well. And of course, mate, because we like to do these things, if we've got time, we'll dip into the full mailbag. What do you reckon? I reckon let's start. Let's get on with it. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, buddy, let's start with the macro as we generally do. We're setting, setting the scene. I've, I, I, do, I do occasionally uh, some media spots and... I've been asked reasonably regularly about some of the economic data. And I've got to say, it is an absolute joy to be talking about it right now because everything is heading upwards. It's been a really great couple of months. The market's up. Almost every economic indicator you can find is not necessarily wonderful, but going in a positive direction. Uh, GDP's up. Inflation's up a little bit. Interest rates are down, I suppose. I guess you look at it that way. Um, and in this case, we had business and consumer confidence out this week. Business confidence up for four straight months. Consumer confidence, get this, the best in 10 years. And <laughs> I've got to say, as I said, a bit, a bit like we started with, I, I love that. I love being able to say, hey, things are looking good. It's better than saying, look, you know, things are terrible and getting worse. So that, that's always nice. I, I, I do wonder, though, again, to your point about, you know, are we, are we at maximum optimism and, and what comes next? A 10-year high for consumer confidence, that feels like a lot <laughs> given where we are, given where the economy is, and give we're not out of the woods yet. Yeah, I, I mean, some of it does not surprise me, though. Okay. Right? Some of it does not surprise me because, like, I mean, I mean, if you look at the total sort of the dollar amount of stimulus, right? Mm-hmm. If you look at the dollar amount of stimulus, it's well, I can't count something that like $25, $30 billion, maybe, you know, maybe even more, right? Yeah, yeah. If you have that kind of stimulus, then that should have 
some impact. <laughs> you expect it to, right? <laughs> if it doesn't do anything, yeah. uh, then what was the stimulus is good for? Yeah. So the stimulus, I think, is doing its thing, which is the which is exactly what you would expect. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, so I, 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 I would say that we're getting the results that you would expect from stimulus. The question yeah. really in my mind, at least from an investing point of view, is what next? And how do you, uh, I mean, this is good news in the short term. Yeah. How do you translate that into investing information uh, for the long term? And that's what I was going to ask you. Firstly, I'll, I'll just give a thought on confidence, but I'll ask you exactly that question and ask you to answer your own question. Um, it, is, it, it is interesting to me. Look, I think, uh, you know, we should expect confidence to actually, given the confidence is a measure of do we think things are going to improve? I think that makes perfect sense, right? In, in fact, coming out of a recession, if, if, if consumers and businesses are half logical, if you're saying, well, compared to now, I think it's better or worse in the future, you should think at the depth of a recession, things will be better in the future and probably for a long period of time, almost by definition. It doesn't mean things are great necessarily even going to be great, just you know, are things going to improve? Well, yes, almost, almost. you know, again, by definition, you should expect that. So I guess we shouldn't be super surprised that confidence is picking up because of that and, and the future hopefully is better than the past. What I like about it, your point about stimulus is, man, can you imagine if we'd wasted that money? Can you imagine if we'd spent, you know, generational debt and then not got nothing for it? That would have been just an absolute kick in the guts. The, the, the good news, if, if, you know, I am an optimist, if you want to be optimistic, is that the, the positivity around business and consumer confidence means that people will spend, invest and hire for a better future. And that is exactly what we need if we're going to have economic growth. So that's, that's you know, you'd hope to see that. And when you do see it, you hope it's going to follow through to something more positive. So that, that's, that's really good. To your point about investing, Matt, I, I guess, you know, I was asked the other day about recovery stocks and... My answer was, well, the time to buy recovery stocks was March, April, and May, not not now, because the recovery is almost here. By the time you realise the recovery is here or has arrived, the, the I won't say the easy money has been made because that's a cliche you can always use, but the, the recovery in share prices generally precedes or at least precedes at the same pace as the recovery itself. And by the time everyone realises everything's okay, prices are already up. There's a possibility prices at, for some companies actually may be too high for exactly that reason. There is so much confidence, so much optimism that we've to some degree potentially abandoned restraint <laughs> kind of going you know what let's just buy it buy everything and who cares just buy it all buy it all buy it all um we'll talk about iron ore in a second so i won't go there but t- l- let me ask you then your your rhetorical question that you pitched what does it mean for investors where where are the opportunities where are the risks uh, given the economic circumstance how how are you looking at the market is it sector is it is it is it industry is it product is it total market does it not matter at all how, how are you taking these sort of macro indicators and the impact on share price that we're already seeing and factoring that into your purchases? Yeah, that's a, that's a good, you know, I've been thinking more and more about this of late. And and I think the longer I invest, the more convinced I am that you need not listen to economists right. and economic data. Because um, I think, again, I can't point exactly why, but I think they're measuring their own things, right. at least when it comes to investing. Because... Sure, people are spending more money. Yep. Uh, you know, people are buying more houses and things like that. But how do I profit from it other yeah, than yeah. if I am in the housing market flipping houses, right? right? right. Um, so, uh, you know, just as an exercise, I'd say mm. for anyone, they can look at the SX100 list as an example, right? And I go through that list and say, well, the banks, mm. I wouldn't invest in them mm-hmm. because, I mean, you know, they're high PE stocks with, um, you know, minuscule earnings growth potential over the long term. Right. So how am I going to make returns from them? Probably not much. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Or I could buy high debt um, companies yeah. like yeah. Uh, things like Sydney Airport on a rebound, you know, potential for rebound because, you know, at some point people are going to start traveling again. Mm-hmm. 
maybe that's a good good you know maybe you maybe that's a good opportunity in some sense but if the price is right right none of these things look like huge opportunities in 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 yeah, themselves right, right? so right. i could buy uh should i buy you know colts and woolies mm, mm. you know are they going to be having you know th- that huge amount of you know potato sales and <laughs> toilet paper sales that they had <laughs> exactly. during the pandemic exactly right so or should i buy the asx as in the asx uh, the company yeah. well how much more trades are going to go through yeah. right how much more money are going to to me it looks like if you look at the asx 100 as a list mm. It almost appears they're not investable. Yeah, right. Right. So, and the reason behind it, in my mind at least, is I mean, again, maybe not not investable is like being very harsh, but well, none of these in a relative th- sense. In, in none of these things actually have what I would say long term growth potential. Mm-hmm. Like what I would say, you know, are they benefiting from some trends? Are they benefiting from the way the world is going to be? Yeah. Like, are, are these the companies that you want to invest in if you're driving ahead looking forward? And to be clear, you're talking about sort of outsized growth, right? I think I think we, you know, the population will grow. Woolies sales will probably just grow slowly over time. You're not saying Woolies is never going to grow. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, absolutely. What you're saying is if you're looking for investments that give you, that reward you for your risk, and, and to your point, you're looking for faster, higher growth businesses, you're not going to find those in supermarkets and miners and banks. Absolutely. Uh, what I'm saying is that if you want bond yields, maybe these are the companies, bond yeah, yield equivalent, right. or like-term deposits yeah. because your term deposits no longer pay anything. Yeah. If you want like-term deposit returns, 4%, 5%, yeah. This is where you look at. None of these companies are going to give you more than that on average. That's yeah, like my yeah. bet would be you're looking at five percent yeah. return annualized over the long term, yeah. right? So, so fact, I'm, going to go, I'm going to go worse than that. I'm going to say that people need to be very careful about some of these companies because the price of bid up so high. You'd expect a five percent annualized growth rate from these businesses, but if you're paying a higher growth multiple. I look at Woolies in particular, for example. I haven't looked at the price really recently, uh, but the multiple on there, I mean, either the market's going to pay that price forever, that multiple forever, which is kind of the CSL story, or at some point, you know, this, I just look, here you go, pay you 43 times earnings according to Google Finance, just a really quick one, $40 a share. I, I, I don't know how. Honestly, you buy that business and say, this is this is a company I expect to, you know, even I think you're right. Sales will sales and profit probably grow up five percent a year in the foreseeable future, but man, when you're starting for a PE of forty three, even if the PE goes to thirty, that's twenty five percent of your value gone. That takes five years worth of growth just to make back. I mean, this is this is a risky investment at the current price. Yeah, absolutely, and many of these businesses just operate only in Australia, a smaller country, right? Yeah. Maybe in New Zealand, small, you know, say ANZ, small country, small population. Population mm-hmm. growth is going to be limited over the long term. Uh, you know, yeah. it's limited as in like two, three percent. If you can, you know, at two percent, uh, at best, maybe three percent. You know, is like the top end, right? So I, I think many of these com- companies have limited upside. So like the way I think about this is the economic data doesn't really help us in these things, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and it doesn't tell us where sort of the, you know, where the future is, right? Yeah. So what the pandemic, in my view, has done is it has accelerated digital growth. Yep. I'd be looking for digital companies. Mm-hmm. And uh, many of them are not on the ASX, maybe they're overseas. If you want large large, large cap growth yep. or mid cap growth, you have to look overseas. I yep. think you should be looking overseas. Number one, you'll get high quality uh, on your, on your you know, companies with, you know, la- la- large amounts of cash, mm. you know, st- very strong balance sheets, right? Um, or you want to look at companies that are niche, playing in niche sectors that have lots of growth potential still uh, over the long term. And I think looking outside that sort of 
you know, the usual is, I think, where the opportunities are. Mm-hmm. And I would specifically, you know, say, like, you know, what? If, 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 let me use an example, right? So you want to play recovery, and let's say you say a travel is going to come back, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Now the really good question is, what type of travel is going to come back, right? Is it is it going to be um, business travel? Is it going to be leisure travel, right? When is it going to come back? Where is it going to come back? How is it going to come back? And how do you want to play it? Yeah, right. It's a very complex question to answer, right? And then then the, then the question would be, well, what type of you know balance sheet do you need to mm. actually survive over the long term and grow yeah, yeah. and still deliver earnings? So that's that's as, a, as an example. Even if you're thinking about traditional markets, and if you're thinking about things like you know or digital economy, well, none of these companies are Zoom, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. so, fair, so, so you've got a problem there. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think um, <laughs> I, I, I think looking, f- you know, the growth is. I think what has happened is the pandemic has driven <laughs> digital growth forward yeah. substantially, yeah, yeah. and digitization has really become. Uh, uh, the mainstay and will be the mainstay and a lot of companies would have realized that digitization actually is going to be long term very powerful yeah. so that's I so I, I, would, I would think about those sort of trends I, I really like that mate so I'm going to take a slightly different view to you only to add more nuance to the now or to the non-doc stocks <laughs> if I put it that way so I, you know I, I guess I'm going to try and answer the question of when does the economic data matter rather so I think your point is absolutely true it doesn't matter much to you because of the way you invest I think that's absolutely appropriate and I think that's that's true and it's particularly true for smaller businesses if you think about the and, and uh, we're talking about the GFC right one, one of the great examples in the GFC was a business called Flexi Group now it's changed a million times not the world's best investment anymore blah 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 Flexi Group grew consistently right through the GFC as if it didn't happen and the reason was that it was a really small credit provider that was simply just signing up more and more stores, more and more chains, more and more franchises, and getting more and more consumers to use the product. And so you had a situation where, was it a good time for retail sales? No. Was it a good time for credit providers? No. <laughs> uh, you know, were things get, you know, did bad debts go up? Yes. All those things were absolutely true, except if you're small and growing into a space, you can grow despite, not, not even, not even, you know, it's not even that you kind of, you know, not going to be hurt mainly for the buyer. You can grow regardless. If you're simply taking share or creating something new, even in a down, down market. Um, another business, ironically, was uh, uh, Automotive Holdings, which has now been bought by AP Eagers. It was a car dealership. And again, you think, hang on, GFC, no one buying cars, what the hell's going on? Turns out they were just, again, small, and they were, in this case, acquiring businesses. We know that roll-ups tend not to work. For AHG, it was, a, it was a spectacular time. They just kept acquiring businesses right through. So again, they were growing structurally despite the cyclical changes. And I think where it matters, where the economy matters most, and you've alluded to this already, mate, so just to, to flesh it out, the economy matters most, ironically, to those businesses that don't have a lot of growth left. Because if you're constrained by the economy, you are victim to that economy. If you're a, if you're a big four bank, you, you don't get to grow you know, market share. You are stuck with whatever happens to house price or whatever happens to total credit growth. And so if you're a bank investor, you better absolutely be paying attention to the economy, not to trade in and out, but to know that the price you're buying for or selling at is a price that is you know, meaningfully reasonable given where the economy is at or where it's going. Um, same for, as you say, the grocers. Woolies and Coles can't take share. They can probably try and expand overseas. They've tried it, it didn't work, but they could try again, I guess. But short of that, again, same thing, right? If you're paying, and we mentioned Woolies, if you're ta- if you're coming off the back of a 12% sales growth and a PE of 43, and you're saying, you know what, I'm going to buy shares at that price, you have to believe, or firstly, you have to have done the work, and then you have to believe that that's a reasonable assumption moving forward that the underlying earnings power of Woolworths is going to grow at some rate that justifies a PE of 40. And if it's not, you'll be really, really careful you haven't been suckered by something specific in the economy 
that doesn't matter anymore. And I think that to me is they're the kind of they're the kind of things that matter. I will say the only thing that does think matter to all investors to some degree, mate, and even again, I say all probably less so for those that are investing in smaller companies or high growth companies. But the economic circumstance does impact government policy, reserve bank policy, interest rates, and and um, and exchange rates. So there are there are still some systemic implications or, or impact on your investment case that you do need to at least be mindful of. You can choose to ignore if you want, um, but you need to have, I, I think, I guess what I'm saying is you need to consciously decide whether or not it's relevant. And that's probably the big one for me. I think, you know, we'd want to be careful for saying people, don't worry about the economy, it doesn't matter to anybody. If you, own, if you own a portfolio full of banks and retailers, you, you know, it, it will absolutely impact your returns. Uh, if you own different businesses, it'll impact you a lo- whole lot less. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. I don't invest in those. Those correct, exactly. Yeah. So uh, you know, it, yeah. Well, what uh, my whole, I think, to simplify, I guess what I'm saying is, if you are a growth investor and you can you can think in ten year windows, yeah, a lot of stuff actually does not matter. Yeah. Yep, yep. What really matters is that you know, do you have a market, large market? Can you execute to the large market yep. and can you grow, yep. grow into the large market? Then everything else becomes okay. I mean, everything is a relative game, right? Uh, relatively speaking, somebody can grow at a very at a much above average rate they you know even valuation right you could be twice as expensive today as you should be you could still be fine yes yes (laughs) i've said before you know uh, growth covers a lot of valuation sins you you can be really wrong on valuation if you can get a compound growth rate of 15 or 20 percent for a decade i won't i'll say this a bit flippantly there's almost no price that's too high to pay because the market's not going to offer you you know, you're very rarely going to have a price that is too high to pay with a 10-year growth rate of 20% compound. Um, I mean, it's possible. It's mathematically possible. The market's just a very, very unlikely. And and frankly, that's your 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 outsized returns, David Gardner's outsized returns in the US have come largely from exactly that scenario where the market is simply undervaluing the long-term potential growth rates of these businesses. And so to some degree, as you, as you rightly say, there is there's a lot of forgiveness in valuation when you have that sort of long-term growth opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Mate, um, so despite despite our comment on, on on how important or otherwise the macro is, I do want to talk about, and you know, we, we need to be mindful that our listeners have a, a range of of preferences and investment styles. We have you know income investors listening to us who are trying to maximise their income from a portfolio. Where um, arguably, I mean, you could pursue a growth strategy and sell some shares. So there's ways of doing it with growth stocks, but um, you know, we, we try and we always try and make sure that we a talk to you, our listeners, about what's important to you, but also try and I guess educate and maybe even maybe even influence or convince you that there are other opportunities around. We we are one of the we don't want to overdo it. We also don't want to underdo it. We're one of the few um, investment houses, financial advisors, whoever's uh, people who comment this stuff publicly who do really make sure we do try and balance that off. You know, the money is money is the is the tool uh, through which everything else happens. It's not the end in itself, and we we always try and make that relevant just because we think that's actually a more human and more realistic way to think about cash and and investing. Um, so I looked again. Speaking of that macro, though, let's let's talk about resources. I, I apologise for bringing it up again. I'll try not to do that. I couldn't remember whether your your Linus example was a a biotech or a miner. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. Didn't mean to I have a lot of biotech failures as well. The other tangent. The problem with biotech is that the success rates are very low. Aren't they? You swing, you swing like what ten times? You likely get one they're right. They're tickets, right? And and they're completely. Low. And you have to hope that the one that works out actually works out really well so that it wipes yeah. out everything else. Yeah, that's a yeah. tough way to invest. Yeah. Anyway, so look, all that said, I want to talk about resources because we know a lot of our listeners are, are thinking about resources. We know it's in the news all over the place. And frankly, I will I will uh, confess to a hidden agenda. I do want to give our listeners a, a, 
a bit of feedback, a bit of thought about if you are buying it or you're listening to the media. Um, just, to, just to give an opinion because we want to try and keep people on the straight and narrow here. The topic, of course, is iron ore, mate. And it, overnight, I, I started. I wrote this this morning. Uh, iron ore hits $145 a ton, and then I checked the news. I had to update it to $150 a ton. It just keeps going up. So that's the good news for resources investors, for resources companies. The iron ore price just keeps going up now. Uh, sorry, and by the way, Fortescue shares now $21 plus, maybe $22 now, all-time highs. Really, really great. And look, I'm I'm super excited for Twiggy. I think, you know, we want to have Australian success stories, business success stories. Um, you know, maybe there should be in other areas other than mining as well as mining. But, uh, you know, we, we don't want to we don't wanna underplay that. Twiggy and Andrew Forrest built, built a fantastic business that is now a truly global player. Uh, and I think that's even worth more than Rio, I think I heard someone say yesterday. So that, that's that's really, really impressive. The problem I have, mate, is that the iron ore price $150, the cost of getting iron ore out of the ground for these big guys is around $15 to $20 a tonne. Now, their software margins, $130 a tonne profit, $150 share price. I can do those maths quickly enough, but what's that probably 85% gross margins? I mean, uh, if you, if, honestly, if someone if someone described that business to you, you'd be like, oh, it's obviously a software company. It's obviously, maybe it's zero, maybe it's Salesforce, maybe it's something else. Um, what a wonderful software company. I want to buy shares of that software company. And then someone would say to you, no, 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 this, this is an iron ore miner. Now, at the moment, the benefit is because there is a limited amount of supply and China is re-ramping up its demand kind of post, post-COVID, both in terms of getting back to normal and frankly, like much of the rest of the world, building lots of infrastructure to try and offset the weakness in the rest of the economy. And if you've got a limited supply and a growing demand, basic economics 101, you know, commerce when I was in year seven, thanks, Mr. Barnett, um, you know, that price should go up. If you've got a limited supply, growing demand, price goes up. That's all fine. But 85% profit margins don't exist in any, over any length of time in any commodity industry at all ever, period. I'm, I was asked last night on radio, is you know is is you know how, how do we how do we get in how do we get involved in this how do we you know, how do we get our share of it like let's you know we don't want to miss out and it was a bit of a, a bit of a rhetorical question or a bit of a um a Dorothy Dixon that was asked by Brooke Cordy from Two GB and, and she, of course they gave me the opportunity to say you don't the time to buy it was months ago not now which is kind of mirroring the the recovery stocks generally I am just really look I don't know whether I know a price goes the next month or even six months maybe even twelve months right I just literally have no idea. Some people say it's going higher. Some say it's going lower. I don't know. What I do know is that 85% margins just don't. They, they don't continue. They, they're just not sustainable. Um, now, maybe maybe demand keeps growing for long enough and supply constraints goes for long enough that this is, a, you know, you get you get a year out of it. And great, if you're a trader and you make some money, then good luck to you. As an investor, you surely can't buy a commodity and you can't buy the shares of the miner when you're making 85% profit margins, can you? Oh, uh, no. <laughs> this is this is when you sell, I guess. It's kind of my thought. I mean, yeah. we don't want to say this is the top necessarily because, I mean, I know it could go to 200 bucks a ton. There's absolutely zero reason why it couldn't in some version of the world. I think my general kind of – here's my issue with, with commodities, right? If, you're, if your view is, well, it might go up, I would say yes and it might go down. And unless you genuinely have some fundamentally based reason – for thinking the price will continue to go up, like not just oh, it might because because I can say I can say it might because of anything. I can say Doc's liner shares might have gone to twenty dollars, and they might have. You know, we, I can say the Woolworths might go to a P of eighty, and it might. And if it does, then would I be surprised? No, because markets do strange things. It just you can't invest that way. Like there is nothing sustainable about investing strategy, which is it might go up, so I might buy some. I mean that 
I, you know, and and it's so easy for people to do that, just a one-line thought bubble, and then buy stocks. And you know, while I'm saying it could also fall, I'm, I'm somehow taking part in that. Except I've got a view, which is over time, there's just no commodity I know of that has ever sustained those sort of margins. When by definition, anyone else, I mean, some, Doc, at some point, two hundred bucks a ton, mate. You and I could give this up and go and you know grab a pick and a shovel and go and start digging some iron ore in, in the Pilbara. Like it's just it, it, every possible iron ore deposit is now stupidly profitable at this sort of price. Yeah, I, I don't have much to add to that. I think you covered everything. I mean, again, it's a commodity industry, right? So it could be, you know, the iron ore could be priced at 200 or could be priced at 50, Yeah. right? And depending on that, you make the profit. Um, yeah, you really need to understand the cycle, demand, what's happening in China, what's happening with the other major iron ore suppliers, why, why is supply not ramping up that quickly? I don't know. I don't know the answer. This is an industry that I don't look that closely at. So mm-hmm. it's good. Well, you know, make hay while you can. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Speaking of which, let's let's finish off with uh, with commodities Matt, on gold. I, again, I was I was asked the other day, why, why is gold falling? Uh, isn't it a safe haven asset? And it's just it's a funny. There's some funny things going on, mate, in in global markets to some degree. And I, I, I it, it's it's fascinating to look at people's perceptions individually versus the market generally. So the people who are asking me that question, uh, I assume themselves thinking, well, the economy still sucks. Why is gold down if it's a safe haven? On the flip side, you got to look at, as we just started the show with, shares must be up, I guess, 15% in the last month and a half if I add November's gains and December's gains together. It, it seems to be very clear that the market is already deciding, maybe rightly, maybe wrongly, but that the recovery is on, that, that asset prices, risk assets like shares are going up. And it makes perfect sense that if you were someone who said, I'm buying gold because I'm scared, and then the, the market is saying, well, actually, you know, problem's over. Share price is going back up again. It makes perfect sense that, that, that the, the process of doing that is people selling their gold, at least in part, and buying shares, at least in part. The money doesn't come from nowhere. So you have to, you have to be able to move that cash from one point to the other. The question I'm still getting there is, well, but isn't gold a safe haven? Aren't we still in trouble? And I think that's where there's some sort of dislocation from, from reality. I think it's fine to say, I disagree with the market, so I'm buying gold, or I agree with the market, so I'm buying shares. But to, but to take your own personal view of the market should think like I do, that's, I think, the, the mistake those people are making. I just want to highlight that because we can absolutely, you know, we, we make money as investors by picking where the market's wrong as long as we're right. So if we get an undervalued share that's just cheap because the market doesn't realize how good it is and it goes up, we make money, that's exactly what we're supposed to do. We're disagreeing with the market. But I think when you say, you know, why is the market doing this? Because obviously there's X going on, I think to some degree, you need to rem- you need to keep some sort of room for doubt, some sort of room for, I understand what the market's thinking or why it might be moving this direction and I disagree so I'm doing something different rather than why isn't the market realizing what I think I know? Well, I don't have much to add to that. Uh, I've read some speculation though and I can share my speculation. Oh, yeah. without any like va- I have not tried any validation of the speculation <laughs> so I'll right. just keep it as speculation that I've read. If we start doing research on this program, people would worry. That would be a big problem. Yeah. So here's my speculation. Oh, here's the speculation that I've read, and that's <laughs> the only on. thing I've read. I've heard that it, a lot of ins- so gold is bought by institutional investors as a hedge yes. or you know for uncertain economic times. Yep. I have heard that a lot of institutional investors have now become comfortable owning Bitcoin, and plus Bitcoin is actually oh, going dear. up. 
So, <laughs> so well, you know, these things go up because other people are buying, right? In, uh, in ultimately, it's like it becomes a demand supply equation. Well, <laughs> demand for gold has gone down, <laughs> and demand for Bitcoin has gone up, right. and Bitcoin price is going up. Yep, so, I think yep. everybody wants safe haven is now going to Bitcoin. Do you well, think that's right? Do you, do you, so, well, let, let me ask you then: what, What's your view on Bitcoin as a as an asset class relative to anything else, and relative to gold in particular? Well, like Bit, Bitcoin is just as funny in my view as as gold right so it's, it's a it's a belief system in yeah, many ways right so if a large number of people if institutional investors if if substantial number of institutional investors or let me put it this way institutional investors that matter yeah. start believing that bitcoin is a safe asset yeah, yeah. and therefore or is a is an asset store of some safety quality yeah, okay yeah well then you could have a shift, right? Right. And uh, so I don't know. As I said, I've not done any research on this. To um, I don't. I do know that there is a, a Bitcoin fund mm. uh, that's operating in a very unique way. Okay. Almost they're mopping up the way they're working. The two things that can happen: one is that one is that Bitcoin price is going to go up, okay. because the way they're operating is they're basically buying up bitcoins, okay. and because Bitcoin is finite, mm -hmm. it's effectively like a share buyback, right? right? Because if everything is taken out of the system, or if you take out more and more stuff yeah. out of the it's system- It's kind of cornering supply. It's cornering supply, so you're All taking right. away supply. And um, fees and stuff, I believe, are also paid in Bitcoin, which again, somehow creates even further shortage of supply. <laughs> so, so I don't know quite the mechanics, but That'd I thought- That'd be a hell of a reverse Ponzi scheme if you think about that. I mean, if, as you say, if you, if you could- I'm not saying I'm a finite, a finite <laughs> supply on the on a trend. That I, 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 you know, I, I'm not, I'm not seeing this. I've not thought of this. But if you think about that, if you make a, if you make a fraction of the transaction in Bitcoin on every transaction, and there's a finite supply of Bitcoin, by definition, if you're the market, you can't help but own the entire market by the time the process is finished. Exactly. Also, well, again, you use the word Ponzi. Let me clarify. Reverse Ponzi. Reverse Ponzi. <laughs> reverse Ponzi. Let me clarify. I'm not saying it's Ponzi or reverse Ponzi. <laughs> and okay. I, and I think I think Scott was also just a hyperboling. We're, was, not alleged, we're not alleging anything against anyone. We're not alleging anything, thankfully. Yeah. So we're, we're just saying. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, like the idea of Ponzi is you you put more money and it pays other people. This is the reverse where you literally, I mean, if you if literally if, you, if your job is to make a, a set percentage of a transaction and it's a finite supply, it, it, if you roll this forward to its conclusion, the only possible outcome is the market makers end up with all, with all the value. Yeah, with the market. But then, then the thing is, how do you cash it, right? right? Yeah. So the end game is not clear. Yeah. Um, but but anyways, I was just using more of this as an example <laughs> of institutional investors yeah. becoming comfortable with Bitcoin. Yeah, right. That may be one of the factors among the many uh, impacting gold. Just a thought. Are you buying uh, buying Bitcoin anytime soon? Uh, no. <laughs> and, and, and and no gold either. So Very good. No, I'm, no, I, I'm doing either. I, I do think, as I said, I just, my message is... I, I here's a here's a quick a quick thought as we move on. If you are an investor who's relatively new to this, or even if you're an experienced investor but you found the last twelve months challenging, um, I just want to share a bit of a pot. We probably should do. I don't know if this is interesting enough to do any more time on Doc. But if you think about twenty twenty as a year, and you think about the lessons of twenty twenty, the urge to sell when things got tough at March April lows would have been absolutely disastrous. Equally, the waiting until the recovery is well and truly in. This is the cab driver phase. This is the best mate, the, the brother-in-law phase where he says, hey, look how much money I've made on the recovery. You should buy some shares too or Bitcoin or gold or whatever you want to buy um, or iron ore. Once the, once the, you know, once the, oh, I was going to say once the fix is in, that sounds terrible. Once the, once the results are clear, once the event has happened, you can't profit from that event. 
and you have to be ahead of these things happening. Not in a, not in a crystal ball kind of way. Just, you know, if you want to benefit from the recovery, you need to abort before the recovery starts. And equally, you know, the, 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 the last person out to turn off the lights, you know, when the party's in full swing, don't, you know, I, I, we, we think, I'll say a few doc, you can disagree if you want. We think people should keep buying shares. Keep buying great businesses. Keep buying well-priced shares. Keep buying businesses that have bright futures that are that are priced at a discount to those futures so you can make some money. We think it's almost always worth doing that at almost all parts of the market. But just remember that, you know, if you're jumping in now to get part of the recovery, it's done. The, the, the you know, the, again, not the easy money, but the recovery is in. It doesn't mean things can't keep growing, but they're going to keep growing from here if and when the economy keeps growing, if and when those companies are more relevant to more people, if and when they are continuing to find ways of providing value to their customers, not because of the recovery in, in air quotes. That's that's pretty much done. We're pretty much back to you know pre-COVID levels by now. So um, just, just a reminder to just think very carefully about what part of a cycle that we're in on the way down and the way up. And if nothing else, Please keep 2020 in a you know in a glass jar somewhere you know, next to your computer, and remember the lessons from this because we will have another market crash. We will have another market slump. We will have more recovery. We will have more doubt and uncertainty. This year has given you a really really nice self-contained year's worth of lessons that I think if you can learn from them will stand you in very very good stead for the rest of your investing life. Yeah, I think I agree with everything you said. Mate, Tom, let's move on then because uh, when you agree with me, I'm obviously wrong. So we'll, we'll move on so I'm not wrong for too long. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Let's get into the billions. We've got plenty of billions to talk about, mate. And the first one is an Australian super, literally the Australian super, super fund is going to spend $5 billion or wants to, so far it's been knocked back, to buy energy company Infratil. Now, Infratil is not one of those businesses many people know. It's an infrastructure provider. I think it's based in New Zealand from memory. Um, large renewables component to its business. It's so. There's a couple of things about that struck me. The first is M and A is well and truly back. There's bids for Link Administration. Sol Pats, who I own shares in, um, put a bid in for Regis Healthcare the other day. Uh, M and A is well and truly back. It's back in a big, big way. So that that's the first thing, and that does give you some sort of marker as in terms of economic recovery and market cycles. When when the big guys are prepared to go throw the billions of dollars about, you know the recovery's in, and you know that. That big guys, big institutional investors, as you said before, Doc, are comfortable throwing some of this cash around, knowing that or believing that it's safe to do so. The second thing I think is, is fascinating is a superannuation fund buying a public company to take it private and run it entirely internally. And this is not brand new to Australia. It's certainly not brand new to the world, but it's a reasonably new occurrence. These guys often had private investments. They might buy a share in a private, you know. Uh, infrastructure company or infrastructure business or whatever, they might buy share into private property. That there's lots of off-market alternative assets. Water rights is one other thing that's been bought by super funds from time to time. This though is is relatively new, and it's I, I want to say one of the largest the largest example of it in Australia if it goes through of super funds literally becoming kind of business owners and managers in almost this conglomerate kind of structure. It's I mean it's a super fund, right? So it's not it's not a conglomerate in the traditional sense, but it's, it's a remarkable turn of events when these companies are literally buying entire businesses to run inside the fund on behalf of members. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure I'm actually a fan of that strategy. Oh, good. Tell me why. Uh, well, largely because like, I'm not sure whether the super fund has the capability to actually run a business, right? I mean, okay, it's yeah. almost like saying, like, we should just let the government run businesses, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. exactly as you want governments yep. out of uh, <laughs> businesses, you yeah. want 
super funds, I would I look at them as money managers, yeah. and I would like money managed to money manage money yeah. and manage investments. But managing companies is a completely different ball game, mm, right? Mm. I and mean, now you could say that well, they're going to hire um, professional, you know, managers to to, I mean, it, to to run things. Yep. But but you know, again, the question would be. Um, you know, do they have the right incentive structures? Mm-hmm. You know, this going to be running as a private company. Um, the super fund probably is doing this because it wants you know a steady stream of dividends. Yes. There's going to be a lot of lot of, I would say, um, interests that may or may not align with running a you know a business for the long term future, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Um, you know, but I do know that you know a lot of um, a lot of infrastructures actually owned by pension funds around the world yeah. um, it's not uncommon but and maybe it's not a big deal because it's like you know an energy company mm-hmm. effectively you know should that lots of energy companies we have had energy companies for like hundreds of years yeah. so it's not really rocket science maybe and maybe it's okay <laughs> it's, it, I just find it fascinating I think you're right man I, I've I've struggled with exactly that, that thought of you know is a super fund the right environment for a for-profit business to, to run and I I kind of I, I haven't really got a view. I, I'm I'm glad you put the alternative view because I, I share both those. I mean, at some at some level, if you simply you know, in a hypothetical world, Australian Super could buy Infratil, leave all the current directors in place, leave the current management in place, and just say keep doing your thing. And there's no reason why theoretically the business would run any differently just because it happens to be listed with a three letter code on a stock exchange versus being owned by an independent private owner. And there are plenty of private businesses, large private businesses out there, like uh, Vizzy, for example, one of the biggest ones. Um, run by Anthony Pratt these days. Richard Pratt uh, was the, the founder, of course, of that business. Um, it does perfectly fine without being listed. So the listed nature of it doesn't need to matter. And as you say, with, with professional directors and, and you know management teams, it doesn't need to matter either. In theory, in practice, I'm kind of with you, I think. like I, well, The other thing, by the way, is valuation. How do you value a private asset once it's off the market? So from a member perspective, when you think about how much is my superannuation fund worth, how much money did I make, the more of those assets that are private assets the harder it is to be really, really comfortable. Not that I'm suggesting Australian Super is doing anything wrong at all. I'm, I'm absolutely sure they're not. We like them. They're actually our default super provider for full disclosure at The Motley Fool. Um, but uh, yeah, I, you know, at, at some point, at some fund doing something like this, the chance that they somehow value Infratil at $10 billion or $2 billion all of a sudden because some sort of independent valuation or alleged independent valuation would change um, and then members have to try and believe or assume or, or consider that that part of their assets under management is, is owning that asset that can't be valued otherwise. I find that probably the most concerning matter I have to say rather than running of it in particular. It's what happens if a super fund, let's not use Australian super because I don't want to allege anything or, or imply that, but you know, Doc and Scott's super fund, 95% of it's made up of privately owned assets that we get some sort of independent valuer who we've paid a million dollars a year to do the valuations who might feel compelled to maybe look after us and do the right thing. At some point with the reckoning, how do you how do you value that? How do you understand the value of that? If you're a fund member, how do you think about that? I, I'm not entirely sure. I feel great about large chunks of private assets inside, even the unlist ones they already own, by the way. But certainly, the more they do this, the harder it is to really genuinely understand the market value of the assets inside the super fund. Yeah, I agree. I agree again with everything you said. Again, that that lots of different views, and you know, we've given a couple of different views. So, um, not my speciality. I don't really. No, I just have a feeling. Maybe if I had to, or I'd say, well, I've, I wouldn't do it, but I don't know what's going on inside. So, as an investor, would you ever buy, would you ever invest in a private company as part of your portfolio? Yeah, I mean, very different situations, of course, you know, different ownership structures, different investments, different access to, to management, that kind of stuff. But to think about that just from a, you know, let's bring it back to investing. Uh, Australian super owning Infratil 
privately independently versus on market different dynamics there you can't price it as easily you can't access the capital as easily you can't sell some off um, the income stream is more available to you so that's a positive um, usually lower lower multiples for private companies would you invest in a private business as part of your portfolio well, actually, you ask, uh, I have, or we have, oh, you, uh, my, okay. uh, you know, but... Oh, uh, I didn't mean to <laughs> but, but, but that's like mostly uh, not, is it part, I guess that's part of business decision, part of an investment decision, part of the reasons, but... Oh, okay. um, in general, like I mean, private investing can be good if you have access to information, if you know who is involved, right. um, you know, and if you believe what you know is being developed or mm-hmm. is being done has future. It can, can it can it can be a very rewarding experience for, but for a very high risk, right? Um, so you get a lower multiple, and mm. you know, I mean, the end game might be if it's a lower multiple, you buy, and it actually grows, and then is listed at a much higher multiple, and you know, yeah. your exit price is much higher. Uh, but in general, what I say is that in public markets give you more information, mm. and therefore they're better, safer for the. I guess if you if you don't want to do the digging, right? Yeah, and and you know, so. Um, yeah, I'd say you should also be wary of investing in public in private, um, because again, you you just don't have information. Yeah, or liquidity, right? You can't sell normally exactly. parts of it easily and all that kind of stuff that goes with it. Exactly, like our private investment, we can't sell. Yeah, right. There you go. <laughs> right now, at least. <laughs> <laughs> the Hotel California of investments. <laughs> so, Check out your time in life, but you can never leave. Yeah. See, mate. Okay, mm. I I've never done it. Um, I I wouldn't be averse to it. Um. But as a minority shareholder in a non-public company with no access to exiting, as you say, those things around, you know, what what can we have access to in terms of liquidity, pricing, multiples? Um, you, you've really got to have a high degree of either confidence or belief or involvement or something um, to, to really put that money to work. And I, I guess that, again, mirrors the, mirrors the Australian super scenario. So interesting. Thank you, mate. appreciate you sharing that one. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, let's move on to some more billions of dollars, mate. And this one is, well, there's a couple of IPOs in the US. And I want to talk about these because I think they are fascinating stories about where we are. We mentioned kind of, we talked a little bit about market expectations and market prices before. Food delivery is massive. Uh, you mentioned before we started taping, you've spent a small fortune with Uber Eats and uh, Uber shareholders, thank you. Uh, a competitor, DoorDash, I think they're only in the US, I don't think they're here, but it's a, a menu log Uber Eats Deliveroo type business. I've never heard of the name, so, so <laughs> I've never used them. <laughs> so, okay, lots of them out there, millions of them out there. Mm. They feel like dime a dozen to me, mm. except the market disagrees. This thing listed overnight, I think it was, so Wednesday night outside, I think, with a market capitalization after the first day of trade of $78 billion. I was flabbergasted, can I say. I know there's a business there. I know there's volume there. $78 billion is, let's say, a lot. Can we, can we agree that's a lot of money for, for, a, for a food delivery business? Yeah, actually, yeah, that's fascinating that you said seventy-eight billion. Well, you know, when, when, while you were speaking, what I was thinking was, but Uber, you know, Uber does uh, taxis, yeah. uh, you know, or ride-hailing, as they like to call it, not taxis. <laughs> uh, ride-hailing sounds more sophisticated, yes, yes. and uh, you know, does deliveries. As I said, I've been giving some money to Uber Eats, um, <laughs> and, and and this is what uh, you know my search on Bing shows. Mm. Uh, market cap for Uber is actually ninety-five billion dollars. 
That's phenomenal. So, so, so one of them seems to be a little out of whack here. Either either Man. Uber is not getting full value, yeah. or or DoorDash is what you DoorDash, said. DoorDash, yes. DoorDash is again um, fascinating. I, I don't know much. That food delivery is a better economic model than ride hailing. Is it possible that of all? I mean, Uber, Uber kind of pioneered the concept of of kind of aggregated kind of uh, almost crowdsourced kind of delivery options. It's not quite crowdsourced, but that kind of idea. Is it possible that food delivery is just a better model, a more profitable, more successful business than ride hailing? Well, well, I don't know. Like, I mean, food delivery as a business, right? I mean, it's a pretty interesting business, right? Because mm. you're not making the food. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody else is making the food. You, as long as you've got the network right. of people willing to order through your app, yeah, yeah. Um, you're taking a cut. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's basically taking a cut for having some software and a few people running around who you are yep. paying minimum wage. Yes, it is. I can uh, be less than that too, by the way, depending on which one you believe. Yeah, a lot maybe. of those delivery drivers. <laughs> yeah. Are, so, yeah. so maybe you're paying. <laughs> I, again, I don't know. The, the, the economics at a very high level, yeah, yeah. at scale, yeah. does look really good, right? So I can and and I mean, yeah, who doesn't like convenience? I like convenience. And and in the during the pandemic, I mean, you know, getting food at home is better than getting food yes. at uh, <laughs> a restaurant, less yeah. risk. Or sitting um, around all the other people waiting, exactly. Uh, exactly. So I mean, I like. I think I like the business idea, right. but I don't know how many of the, like there's Uber Eats, there's DoorDash, Menulog used to be. Minilog was Australian, which right? Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, I think yeah. Minilog yeah. was Australian, which was acquired then by right, okay. uh, some mob from somewhere. I refuse to use Minilog because those bloody ridiculous ads. Can I say? Have you seen the most recent ones? Well, I have not seen. Was I don't Snoop, see any Snoop ads. Snoop Dogg and a whole lot of. No, this is on TV. I was watching the cricket. Snoop Dogg and a whole lot of Australian sports people singing along to some ridiculous. Anyway, I won't rant. Thank Suffice you. it to say, I've seen more than more than enough Minilog ads for the rest of my life. So, I don't, <laughs> it seems like. There is a business here, yeah, and it's a scale game, and whoever has scale, or maybe the few people who have got scale, mm. um, are going to do okay. Right. I don't have a sense of the valuation. I really can't tell whether the valuation is reasonable or not. Can I ask you about that whole model? I've seen plenty of people complain about Uber itself, in the sense that they can never really justify the multiples because they don't make enough money. Most of the cash goes through their hands to a to a driver uh, and it's a super competitive area where you have to continue to work hard to get this network very very hard to ever lock it in so there's kind of for all the losses they keep they're still burning billions of dollars worth of cash for all the money that's being burnt there's the whole of people who doubt this is even a, a sustainable business model not because the idea isn't great just because there's no there's no not enough value accretion to the the, the organizer the network operator as there would be in other circumstances i don't necessarily agree with that. I, I, I don't really understand how it could or would be different from an eBay or a, frankly, a Facebook, I suppose. I mean, if you're the network operator, you don't make all that much money. Maybe the issue is with valuation rather than the actual model itself. But it just strikes me, if you can become the biggest and then manage most of the traffic, doesn't you, know, you can clip a small amount of the ticket. Think about like the Visas and MasterCards. Right? I mean, these guys make almost nothing at every transaction, but there are so many bloody transactions, they make a fortune. Are you? Are you? Where, where do you sit on the Uber... I don't know if you have a view on valuation, so maybe put that aside if you want to. But just as, as a as a business model, given the given the critique of of where the value is actually accreting, if any, is being generated at all, or whether it's just a really nice public service being funded by venture capital for the benefit of the rest of us. Well, I, I think there's value there. I mean, again, without going specifically into valuation, I think as, exactly mm. as you said, it's a, it's a it's a scale game. It's a platform game, right? Whichever company mm. has the platform that is big and the 
you know you build the platform once it doesn't cost extra for the app to be downloaded into another phone right yeah, yeah so the argument would be though that the the drivers can have more than one app the passengers can have more than one app so it's you know there's there's only one facebook i mean these other social networks there's only one facebook there's only a couple of credit card you know visa mastercard kind of um processing uh networks if there's no if there's no end to the number of potential available networks and you can have more than one. In other words, it's not a winner. The argument is it's not, not necessarily a winner-takes-all market. That even if it gets big, it can never get big enough because we can always start Doc and Scott's ride-hailing service and have that app alongside Ola and Lyft and Uber and as many others as they have charge. Um, there is no, there's no logical point at which they can really rub out the other competitors and so there's not enough money that can accrete to the the winner in that space yeah i mean part of that is true right when on the other hand though like i mean what chance does a local small player have when competing against a global player like yeah. say uber and lyft yeah. i guess this almost seems like you're going to have a couple maybe two or three like in any sort of these businesses you'd see that the couple of maybe two three global players mm-hmm. some niche local players yeah. right so i mean ola is very strong for example in india ola is trying really hard for example in australia it right is, but yeah. is it really winning yeah. Yeah. Uh, we don't know right again right. it's a private business but um share of mine's massive right if you think i mean i've i've got new for a very long time for for obvious reasons i remember so we we have an office on the gold coast and we go there occasionally uh and a couple of times we've gotten an uber you know, on the gold coast and say, hey have you tried ola ola's a really great app there's a little ad there but as a share of mind Everyone knows Uber. Uber is Uber is synonymous, like Googling or Kleenex tissues. Yeah, you know, yeah. Uber is synonymous with ride hailing. He said, "How you want to try Ola?" I was like, oh, "I could, but I'm happy enough with Uber. That like, I don't need anything else." Yeah, I, th- I think so. Like, I mean, there, there is some market share you can gain by pricing, by freebies and things like that. Yeah, and okay. you know, you can you can, but but exactly as you said, it's like you know, a couple of different couple of different players. So right. I think there is a business here. Right. Um, again, I don't know. I mean, these guys make what twenty five percent or thirty percent of the fare. That's that's you know, pretty high gross margin business, right? If you think about mm-hmm. it. So. And the market is huge, mm-hmm. right? So the market is huge. It's a high gross margin business. Yeah. You would think that this should generate a lot of cash. So I think that's the thesis. But again, I haven't looked at any of these that closely mm-hmm. um, to have a view on whether the valuation is good or bad or mm-hmm. whatever it is. Is let's see, last one on this one. Um, as I think about this business, uh, how, how do you? So if I think about cab charge or the cab companies haven't made a lot of money yet. Uh, and certainly less now that <laughs> it's right hailing apps. On one hand, I want to say, look, it's like Visa and MasterCard. You know, there's, there's clipping the ticket, make a lot of money just by being globally, all the, all the stuff you just talked about. On the other hand, I think, okay, what if we we could take the same story of Uber and make it about airlines? And now airlines are an easy one. I always bring those up because they're a really nice example of massive, massive, massive growth in, in, in volume. But no one's making any money because effectively it's a commodity option. I could fly... Virgin, or I could fly Qantas, or I could fly Emirates, or I could fly American, or I could fly Etihad, or I could fly Malaysian, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and despite the fact that there are good brands and despite the fact there are terminals and other things, never really ever got to a point of anyone making any meaningful money and certainly not capturing the whole market. The, there's always someone else who could come along and just keep eating it away. Given that, given that scenario, you're saying the business model there, I don't want to keep pushing down that path. And I said, I don't really have a strong view. But I do wonder, at some level, whether you know, is Uber more like an airline, or is it more like a, a, a you know, credit card, clip the ticket kind of company? Do, do you have a sense of how you would 
how you would kind of make the case for where Uber might sit on that continuum? Well, Uber, Uber is not an airline, right? So like the major issue with, so airline industry is a very funny industry, right? A, it's a very capital heavy, yes. right? Somebody has to buy the planes, lease the planes. <laughs> yeah. uh, you have to pay airport operators, which are typically monopolies, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, and I mean, in many ways, taxis used to be monopolies because to have the right to fly, you know, run a taxi, you had to pay. In the New York, they used to call it the taxi medallion. That's Here, right. it's called the plate. Yes. Um, and those things used to cost a lot of money. Although Uber went around that by basically breaking the law and saying, "Well, we don't really care. We are not really taxi. We <laughs> yeah. are something else. Yeah. Uh, we are ride-hailing, and therefore the rules don't apply to us, right?" Yeah. And so, and, and, and regulation often exists because regulation is regulation and has not been changed. <laughs> yeah. um, yep. You know, I detest regulation, you especially. Do those that have been written like 100 years ago, <laughs> there exist to line up pockets of other people and to deter innovation, right? So so I think these things happen. So it's definitely not like mm. airlines. The other big thing with airline mm. is, which we I, I think it's not talked about a lot, mm. uh, but it's very important, is in airlines, there are two types of airlines. One is an airline that's completely public entity. And then there are airlines which are run by governments mm. as an engine uh, for their economic growth or economic development or for tourism or whatever. Not you could, if you were a government running an airline with that sort of agenda, you could run it at a loss forever. You yeah. could basically beat out yeah. your competition. Yeah. So it's not really a, a free market in that sense, sure, sure. right? So it's it's very different in that sense. So I it's. I think this is much better than uh, Visa and MasterCard in terms of clipping the ticket, right? Visa mm, and MasterCard mm. are clipping a very small amount on large amounts of dollars flowing through, right? Yeah, because right. there are other intermediaries involved. Yeah, okay. Here, That's fair. here, there's no other intermediary, right? Yeah, there's only yeah. the other person is the person providing the vehicle, yeah, okay. person taking on the debt for the car, <laughs> and then doing the hard work. What's, it's a nice business model, isn't it? I mean, well, to be fair, I mean, Uber has literally burnt through billions and billions of billions trying to get it up and going. But if it, if it can get to scale, and that, that is the new way of these things, VC have plenty of cash they want to throw at this stuff. But to your point, if, if and when they get there, they, they their cost is pretty much advertising a bit of software at the end. I mean, I, 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 this, will, this will be a horribly naive thing to say, but you imagine that the app is 90% finished. I mean, they'll, they'll add some stuff to it, but fundamentally the functionality, unless things change dramatically, is kind of there, right? All, all they need to now work on is that scale you talk about. And then once you arrive, it's like, great, so... The, the riders are going to manually and, and you know, voluntarily download the app. The driver's are going to turn up because they want the money and they want to use their cars. You just got to go, okay, I'll stay here and just click the ticket. I mean, at some point, there is some, and maybe they, don't, maybe they don't win for whatever reason, but if they can get to that victory point, once the marketing starts to die away because Uber is synonymous with taxis slash ride hailing, once the app development kind of goes away to some degree, because you always have care and maintenance and updates, but the, the, the fundamental functionality is done, it's kind of there and... You know, it, all that's left is to collect the honey. You, you know, like Uber to me is like an airline, and yeah. I'm changing my view. I'm saying, oh, here we go. So right. it's, it's like an airline, except <laughs> yes. that it's all my it's air it's it's planes, yeah. which is cars, are all microfinanced yeah. by other people. I'll provide suit 1A. Yeah. You me, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so this is like fascinating. That. So I, I don't know. I mean, it's very hard to beat. I, I think it's very hard to beat a global player yeah, yeah. Um, doing sort of these sort of capitalized uh, businesses. It's, it's similar to what, you know, many of these hotel chain companies work, right? They don't own the hotels. They own just the brand. Right. So, um, so fascinating Let me, me, me seg straight to that then because you've, you've given me a wonderful opening. I'm going to just go straight to it. Airbnb is also about to list. And uh, allegedly, the market cap of about forty billion or valuation of forty billion dollars. Now, uh, we saw DoorDash double on IPO, so maybe by the time Airbnb has its first day of, of public trade, it gets to a similar level of eighty odd billion dollars. Um, 
that's I. That's it. It's hard to. I'm trying to work out how to compare Airbnb. Is it? Is it more like Uber? Is it more like DoorDash? Is it more like something else? But again, the same kind of thing applies, right? Like, who else is there in holiday rentals? And there's some. There's stays and other things. But realistically, Airbnb is the only only player in town. They've got an absolute welter of available inventory from everyone who's got a spare room or a house that's vacant, or people are literally buying. There's Airbnb management agencies popping up to effectively provide the kind of same services as a mini, you know, one one room, one house hotel. Um, these guys are coming to the market too. And, and I've got to say, similarly to Uber or DoorDash or any of these guys, it feels like, again, they've got all the upside, none of the cost. They, they've managed to fractionalize beautifully and, and bring out the most valuable component of the value chain. So they will have that bit and will find, convince, cajole other people to do all the low return stuff and help fund our business. That... Is that too jaundiced, too cynical of you? Well, it's not. You know, like, you know, my favorite thing with investing is you want to invest um, innovation. Yep. As a country, also you want to encourage innovation, right? So if you if you don't do, if those two things actually go hand in, that's how you <laughs> yep. make money. Yep. So the innovators basically are saying, uh, well, you guys want, you know, we want you to take all the debt. Yep. You like building houses. Great. Good for you. Take gazillion dollars of debt buy those rental properties <laughs> I know, I know. and then put it on our platform. <laughs> oh, we'll give you small pennies yeah, yeah. along the way. Yeah. Right. So, you know, should we be jealous of them? No, uh, <laughs> I think jealous. they're smart. Uh, and therefore you need them because yeah. you, you've taken the debt. Right, right. <laughs> you need to pay your debt. You have no choice, but to use Airbnb. Yeah. I'm being just being cynical, but I think, you know, that's, this is what I, where I think, um, thinking out, this is where policies matter. This is where thinking yes. matters. This yes. is where it matters how you think about business and how the world is. Is it you know there are always these clever models. So the Airbnb in many ways is an extension of the hotel model, right? right. So if you look at Marriott, that's a brand. So I didn't know this. You told me this this morning. So yeah. So Ma- Marriott maybe owns some hotels, but not most of the hotels. Most right. of the hotels are owned by franchisees right, or right, by right. other people or even yeah. super farms and all these other things yep. right they don't they don't have the cost for development they don't have they basically provide a system mm-hmm. here is the marriott logo this is how it looks make it exactly look like that <laughs> follow all our Red rules uniform, right yeah, yeah, yeah. Fo- follow our, our rules use yep. our reservation system yep. and just pay us money Right, <laughs> so it's a very capital-like business yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in that sense, and Airbnb is That's just beautiful. an extension of that. Saying, "Well, you know, all people around the world mm. take debt for you know housing. How do we capitalize on that?" Yeah, it's nice enough. So it's a it's a very nice, beautiful business model. <laughs> um, yeah, so Airbnb actually is very interesting to me, at least. I'm going to say, man, I think Airbnb is a better business than Uber in terms of its ability to defend against others. I think if you're going to jump in a car. You're going to choose whatever app, whatever driver. Like it's pretty, it's a it's a pretty commoditized deal, right? You don't really choose. We never choose the driver that turns up. The driver doesn't choose the rider. It's it's a purely transactional service where you trust that the ratings, yes, to some degree, bring the the better providers to the top. So you hopefully have a better experience overall. But that's kind of where it stops. For me, the Airbnb market, not so about necessarily total market size or total profitability, but in terms of quality of business model, if you're going to rent your house out to somebody you don't know. You're going to have to trust the provider. If you're going to rent a house from someone, you're going to have to trust the provider. The the the, the hurdles here, the the obstacles or whatever you call it, the barriers if you like, 
are just much higher for that trust transaction. There's the cost of some trust. You're putting your your physical body in a, in a car, and I'm sure that's by the way um, more relevant for women than blokes, generally speaking. Without being gen- too generalized, generalizing too much about it, um, you want to have you know a higher level of perceived safety if you're uh, you know someone who feels under threat from from someone else in a car. So yes, there's that. But I have to say, from a purely um, business model perspective, I think I'd rather be Airbnb than Uber. I think if they can get to or when they get to that, st- that sort of success, I have to feel like that's a it's a more defensible, stronger, higher quality business model. Do you do you agree or disagree? Um, I I'm not sure. Like, I mean, I'm not sure. As in, like, I mean, the, theoretically speaking, somebody else could develop an Airbnb equivalent app. There are true, already, true. yes, um, like you know. Uh, there are holiday rental websites yeah. that do basically they're, they're basically aggregators they, have, totally, they aggregate totally. yep. uh, people yep. uh, the the people who want to rent yep. and the people who want to rent out right so in yep. in theory anybody else could also build out um, a similar platform but what I think I think the trust involved though like if I'm going to put a couple thousand dollars down to rent a house for a week and a half or if I'm going to put my house online I'm going to want to really trust the network operator more than if I'm just doing a quick ten minute drive across town for fifteen dollars. Like that. That's my. That's my. I might be wrong. That. But that's my supposition. Yeah, I'm. I'm not. Again, I don't know. I, okay. I don't know. Like, I mean, one of the things that. It, so, you, what you're basically saying, the brand matters, right? It's um, basically, in some ways, Airbnb yeah, well, brand well, the, is the, the trust of the business. I mean, brand in the sense of the name. But yeah. The, the idea that I can trust. I, I can put my thousand dollars down trusting I'm going to get a decent experience because Airbnb is at least reputable and they've probably done the right thing. They've probably got enough users, enough ratings. To me, my $1,000 is safe. Or again, I've got my house that's or my unit that's worth X hundred thousand dollars. I'm going to let someone come in and hopefully not trash that based on the value of the network and all the stuff that goes with that. The size of the network as a, as a potential user feels like I'm, you know, I, I use Ola or Lyft <laughs> over Uber faster than I use anything else over Airbnb for exactly that reason. Maybe yeah. I'm just unusual. No, so I, I think some of that is true. But uh, the, the I guess the flip side of the argument from my point, at least, you know, my experience is that what Airbnb has been doing, mm. um, a lot of the other chains like say, Booking.com, yeah, right, right. Yeah. Expedia, they're also doing the same thing. So okay. they've actually started taking listings of holiday homes and things like that, right? Okay. right? So they already have the reputation. So I, again, I don't, think, yeah. I don't think this is, again, has to necessarily be winner's take takes all type of market right mm-hmm. you, you each like so uh, airbnb for example has um partnerships mm. that it has struck for example with Qantas so you know you're buying a Qantas airline ticket if you want to buy uh, you want to rent using Airbnb well you can get some Qantas points if you do that mm-hmm. you know so there's there's a bit of that but I just think you know as, as you were explaining I think the business model is just very attractive right and it's yeah. one of those business models where the costs have been pushed away to everybody else right <laughs> yeah, yeah. and and it's basically you're just talking about the top dollars here and everybody's yeah. just basically making money of the top dollars yeah. and there are potentially multiple people who can make those top dollars and that's all fine mm-hmm. uh, you know you can make the top dollars via Expedia I mean Expedia or Booking.com they're basically the similar types of businesses right yeah okay if I say, right, I'll, I'll uh, I don't, yeah I'll have a think about that maybe you're right maybe you're right maybe I'm being too uh, maybe I'm being too too I don't know. Too concerned about it. Maybe we got time for one very quick question. What do you reckon? Let's do it. Now, this one, I, I've pushed the top of the list. We'll do some more. How about we do a mailbag episode on Sunday? How about that? Is that a question? I, you should stop asking that question. Because it's, it's, it's almost a given. I figure, gonna... I figure our listeners appreciate my humor, but that might be misplaced. Yeah, I, I think we should now inform our viewers <laughs> that we are not going to do. Oh, that's harsh. When we, when we are not going to do, we're oh, going to say, I see, okay, I see. 
So we're not going to cancel Malbec. You're not, so we're, not, we're doing it. If we're doing it. Okay, but, we're doing it. but right. you know. Yeah. Before that, I want to do one in particular from Ajit because uh, Ajit's question is reasonably uh, topical and reasonably uh, time sensitive. So we thought we'd roll this out. Now, I own shares in Treasury Wines. I'll declare that up front. So I'll ask you the question first, Doc, and then I'll give my thoughts. Ajit says, hey, Scott, you guys are the best when it comes to general knowledge on capital markets and the economy. Thank you, mate. I just want to say thank you for providing free educational service for you and Doc. Also, I just want to ask about your thoughts on Treasury Wines. Now, he says, since you own them, and I do. Do you think it's a good time to buy Treasury at the moment since it's trading at a very low price? Do you think it revenue do you think revenue will be affected by the tariffs imposed by China? Do you think in the future it can find another alternative market? If China decides to make this tariff permanent and improve its revenue, or will, uh, how will it improve its revenue on EBIT or profits? I just want your unbiased opinion on the stock for a long-term investment of at least 5 to 10 years. I'm 23, bastard, and I want to buy more stock in this special 2020 year. Cheers. Get Doc on MySpace. There you go, Doc. Back to the future. Back to what were two thousand five ish. He's just he's just putting me back back in time. <laughs> he has time travel going on. Mate, if he, I think he just wants to be as, wants us to be as young as him, and I reckon that's okay. I'd I'd be okay with that too if we could go back to uh, the MySpace years. I'd, I'd happily take another. Not that I've not that I've had a terrible last decade and a half. I've I've actually done quite well and quite enjoyed it. But um, having another fifteen years ahead of me would be nice. All right, mate. So I have views on, views on Treasury wine estates, but I'll ask you first. What do you think about Treasury at the current price, given the current circumstances and the potential outlook? Yeah, so I don't know Treasury that well. I'll just give some high-level thoughts about Treasury. Or So I think Treasury's current issues is going to be a, a twofold, right? One is, what's the impact of tariffs um, from China? China? China has been a very profitable market for them. If, um, if you remove that, side of profitability mm-hmm. not only are you removing supply uh, that was destined to go there you're also putting downward pressure on pricing elsewhere in other markets because you have to try to sell that that additional supply that you've got elsewhere so that I think has a it has a flow on effect at least for some time that's mm. number one um, I'm not really sure exactly how that shakes out number two in my view would be, I guess I would think how this company is likely to do long-term. Now, my view is that this, okay, so, and I know you'll disagree with this, but wine, in my my opinion, is a commodity. Uh, Yes, different companies have brands, but it's like basically saying, well, you know, I've got Penfolds and I've got Bordeaux, which one is better? Well, they're, well, for the person who wants Bordeaux, it's Bordeaux, for the person who wants Penfolds, it's Penfolds, right? So, so, I think it's still competitive and within each category you have a fierce competition. Largely because again, innovation is very difficult. It's very difficult to say I have a fancy new um, headphone that is much better than somebody else's because I've done blah, 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 right? Again, it's not technology. So I think pricing is always going to be at the margins and, and you know, for within within category. Mm. So that's something to consider um, over the long term. And effectively, the other thing to consider is what is the opportunity? So here's the thing Treasury's opportunity. Treasury's opportunity is really in what are the other undeveloped, um, you know, alcohol drinking markets mm, mm, where you mm. can get in. So, you know, there's India, there are, you know, there's parts, other parts of Asia. Um, 
how much can you develop those markets? What's the competitive dynamics in those markets? Mm. Can and and I guess if you think about a rising middle class, whether it's in Latin America or I mean, Latin Americans actually drink wine because they've got good wine, you know, in many of the Latin American countries. But um, so, is as a rising middle class should help with all of these mm. sort of commodities. Mm. So that's the thing. So ultimately, it comes down to what price you're paying, yeah. and I have not looked at the price uh, to have a view in terms of whether or not the price today is extremely attractive or not i don't know well like that's good good summary i i look i can't disagree much of it in in terms of the thinking i do have a slightly different view on the value of the brand um i think there is i would argue some degree of self-evidence in the sense that if you're paying 700 bucks a bottle for grange versus five dollars fifty for a bottle of queen adelaide you probably there's probably some pricing power there uh, at a brand and an individual wine brand so when i say wine brand i mean grange specifically as opposed to penfolds as a total brand but i think the total i, I think it's it's funny actually it's funny how people can look at exactly the same situation see really different things right and i think that's that's the, the fundamental kind of you know um uh, truth of investing I, I would I would argue that there's you know the, the margins they're making the prices they're charging does and the fact that people are paying it um, does suggest that there is value in those brands that people are already prepared to pay those prices and there's no reason why that should change in my personal view so that for what that's worth um, and the fact it's being demanded you could buy you could buy Queen Adelaide in, you know, in Australia in China in New Zealand anywhere else uh, America the fact that people are choosing to pay more is Maybe, maybe you know. There's there's pricing power, and there's people who just pay silly prices for things. And it's a it's a it's a it's a fine line. I'm sure there are some grand drinkers among our audience. I'm unfortunately not one of them. Uh, I don't have that sort of cash. But uh, yeah, like it, people are prepared to pay different prices for different things. I think there is some sense that the the reality of the last few years says that people are prepared to pay large amounts of money for wines they perceive to be high quality. Um, I think. Look, Ajit, it's my own shares. Um, I've said publicly I'm going to buy some more, although to be fair, we have a trading policy that I can't buy two days either side of talking about, commenting about, writing about Treasury. And so I think I said about two and a half weeks ago that I'd buy some more shares and I literally haven't had a single day in the last two and a half weeks when I've been able to do that because it's always been a couple of days either side of a, um, a comment. Again, like today, which pushes me out another couple of days. This is going to wear on Friday, so I can't do it until at least Wednesday, which is two full trading days. That's uh, that's Monday and Tuesday. So we'll see. We'll see if I ever get to buy some more shares. But in the meantime, I, I own them. Uh, I... I think, look, it might be a long road to hope. The real question for me is, it does 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 profit return to that previous level? How long does it take to get there? Um, if this China thing drags out for five years, it's entirely possible that we end up with a market lagging return from from Treasury. The shares are about half, less than half of what they were uh, in the middle of 2018 before some of this ructions kind of started to get slowly worse and slowly worse and then much worse. Um, and so, you know, there is some there is some question about how quickly we get back there. I think that's the biggest question for me. I think there'll be more. Australian wine drunk and more treasury wine in particular drunk in China in 10 years than there is today. I, I, well, maybe not today, maybe last year is a better way to look at it. Um, I think that's I think that's far more likely in my view than not, uh, just because frankly, you know, more people, more consumers, more affluence. Uh, it makes some to go sense that's likely, but whether it happens fast enough to give us a market beating return is the question I've got. I'm a, I'm a believer, I think it will, um, but I wouldn't ever want to say to someone, hey, you know, you should assume this or this is definitely the case. Um, there's never any certainty in investing, but I'm a happy shareholder. <laughs> I'm a happy shareholder based on the share price, um, but I'm a happy shareholder based on what I expect the future to look like any more on that doc um no well i was looking at actually i was looking at cap iq one of the things i would think about yep. um is so this company had about 1.8 billion dollars of sales in 2014 yes and in 2020 it had 2.7 billion dollars mm-hmm. so in about six years it has grown its sales by 50 percent yep 
that's good yep not great in, you're a hot in, man. in my in my you're in a my hot world. man um so <laughs> I, i don't know like I, i think i actually don't know what the p is <laughs> Um, and I've got to say, like, I was going to actually talk about the PE. I'm not going to because profits are all over the place. And I think uh, depending on what data you're using and what year, yeah, you know, the 2021 year is going to be worse than 2020 just because of well, – But that, that's, that's almost given. Yeah, just, yeah. So that, but what yeah. I mean is the, the PE on that basis is kind of irrelevant. I'd, 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 I'd be looking five years out and saying, you know, what, what level of off profits do I think it can achieve based on what I assume happens in China and then go from there on valuation. I think whatever historical number we used, frankly, it'll look cheap on a, on a trailing PE because last year's profits were good. The share price now half of the previous share price. So it looks looks really, really cheap. Uh, that is that dramatically understates the challenge in front of the company. You know, here's a, I'll, I'll give a GTA form a way to think about this. Okay, this is my way of thinking about this and Scott's way is probably going to be different, but I'll tell you how I think about this. I'll say that let's assume, I would assume, in, in sort of a base case, I'd assume that this company would be able to, let's say, grow its sales by 50% in the next six years. Mm-hmm. That's what it has done. That's pretty it's gonna, good. Yeah, and it's going to be a little bit of a difficult journey, but yeah. maybe it can get there in six years. Yep. So 50% its sales go up. I would hold margins around where they are, mm-hmm. right? And then basically you could you could use that to, yeah, uh, yeah, to sure. you know, so this product company probably would have a net income margin of maybe 10%. Um, good case, assume that your, you know, your sales go up 50% in six years, your net margin at that point is whatever that number is at yep. 10%. Yep. Now, at that point, how much do you think the market is going to pay? Mm. I would assume maybe market pays, what, 20 times? Uh, that's your effective yeah. price then. Yep. Look at the price now. Yep. And it gives you a ballpark way of thinking about Stop. where 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 this is going to be landing in. And I have no idea. I have not done the math. <laughs> <laughs> so here's my, here's my simpler version, Doc, for what it's worth is if the, if the price was reasonable, at a multiple level, and you, we could argue about whether it was or not, but if it was reasonable when the price was $18 and it's now $9, and if profits return back to some sort of normalcy post-China's trade war, it's a bit like, to, to me, and this is this imperfect and I don't want to I don't want to draw... I, I, I'd never like to think, compare things to Amazon, right? Because people think, I think I'm then assuming that's absolutely the case going up X percent or X, X hundred times in value. But like COVID, when the market crashed and came back, it, was, it seemed likely to me that business returns to the same level of profitability as pre-COVID, And so if I'm getting offered a price which is 30 or 40% below previous prices, that felt like, and I said at the time, a reasonably very, very good probability of success because yeah, if, if profits return to normal and share prices return to normal, which you would assume they should based on past prices, there was an immediate 50-ish percent, 40 to 50% upside from the March-April lows. My, my view on Treasury is it doesn't even have to do that much more than just get back to normal. And if it does, and the market's prepared to assume that That's then worth the same price it was before the the the, um, the China crisis, and there's you know reason it mightn't. But if but my base case is basically if profits go back to normal levels and multiples go back to normal levels, there's a double from here, just to get back to where we started. <laughs> and then if there is more growth on top of that, to Doc's point of 50%, for the sake of the exercise and margins stay the same, then we can I guess assume that profit go up by 50% in in keeping with that number, uh, and so the share price should go up something like that as well. If that's also true, then you've got a share price that's I don't know. $20, $25, maybe $30 if we say 50% increase on $20. Bucks. At $9, that to me feels like a pretty attractive risk reward. Now, it may not happen for a million reasons. So please don't, I'm not forecasting, I'm not predicting, I'm not promising, I'm certainly not guaranteeing. Uh, but my investment and why I will be buying small shares if, if when I get the chance based on our trading rules, um, I, you know, I, think, I think we're a very good chance of 20 and a pretty good chance of 30 in not unreasonable amounts of time from here. So I was doing the maths while you were talking. Yes, which um, come up with? So... Yeah, it's about $2.50, aren't you? 
No, well, <laughs> my, my number is much lower. I don't have that much confidence. So I think sure, at sure. so at to me it looks like the eighteen was high. Uh, well, if the ten percent. So if you assume that the uh, the revenue went up fifty percent. Then at ten percent of that, you'd get to about fifty percent from here in six years would be roughly four billion mm-hmm. in sales. Take ten percent of that as um, four hundred million in yep. net net income. Multiply that by a very reasonable multiple of twenty five, mm-hmm. and you arrive at a ten billion dollar market cap. Um, market cap today is about six point some billion. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at fifty percent increase. Yeah, fifty sixty percent increase. So I w- I would th- I would put decent odds. Yep. That you would get, well, I think uh, there are some good odds that it'll get there, yeah. but and yeah, so a fifty percent increase from here would mean roughly I don't know what the share price is, but probably around yeah. fifteen dollars is, yeah, is six, fifteen sixteen dollars is yeah. probably where I think is. And then of course there's upside if margins increase and downside if the sales don't get there and yeah, China, China drags on for ages for sure. Yeah, so I mean, if China thing improves, this uh, you know, so that that's where the upside is. Um, Mind you, though, some of these growth numbers assume because the previous growth numbers have been influenced by China, right? So, yes, correct. Yeah, exactly. Right. right. So, so the assumption of fifty percent growth. So, I mean, yes. Well, like in anything in investing, right? I mean, this could be a sixteen dollars stock. It could yep. be a thirty dollars stock. Correct, correct. Or it could be a twelve dollars stock. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? but it, could, it could be it could so, be a nine dollars stock in five years time. If China doesn't get resolved and they can't find a home for some of that wine, yeah, they, they, yeah, very yeah. possibly. Well, one thing I'll say, which uh, one thing I'll give Treasury, which is uh, Treasury is actually in a much better position compared, like in a for a largest company, hmm. uh, what actually surprised me, they've got four hundred fifty million dollars of cash, which is un. This is atypical. Mm. Yeah, correct. Yes, yes. She has two billion dollars of debt. Debt. It is like I mean, he's got enough cash that it is not really desperate. And mm-hmm. being de- being desperate and being whacked at the same time is a bad position to be in. So they're not in that desperate whacked. They've been whacked. But they're not desperate. So that that's really <laughs> actually a good thing, um, you know. And most of these sort of wine producers and so on carry debt because. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, heap yeah, of inventory. Yeah, heap yeah, of inventory. Yeah, yeah. So, so that that that, yeah. that that that. So, actually, that's the positive here. So maybe they don't have to do a dilutive cap raising anytime soon, which uh, yeah. which is actually a positive. They'll put a decent hole in the investment case for sure. Yeah, but yeah. I think the chance of that seems low I to agree. me. Yeah. There you go, Gene. Hopefully, it's useful, and hopefully for our listeners too. And if you're not interested in treasury, um, I quite like that conversation, Doc, because it was kind of a nice two or three different well, ways of thinking about valuation and and the way to think about what normalized earnings might look like and how to how to. Yeah, yeah. Just put it, put an investment case together. Just back of the envelope. Yeah. On what a business might be worth based on some outcomes. And and, and I'm just going to caveat that I don't know anything about treasury, <laughs> so I just made up some numbers just as a as a framework. So that's yeah. as, as a framework that one can think about. That's what I love about. It. So you know, whatever company you're looking at after this conversation, hopefully you've got a few different ways to look at the the way an investment case might play out. Ways to think about valuation, think about share price, market expectations, all that kind of stuff. Uh, that was that was a really cool conversation. And hopefully, it gives us it gives you listeners some sort of framework for for doing exactly that. Doc, we are massively over time, Matt, but I did want to shut shut that conversation down because it was just a really good one. Hope our listeners enjoyed it. In the meantime, we will be back next Sunday. Between now and then, do us a favor. Jump on our socials, if you would be so kind. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to get your questions and comments and feedback. You can do so on Twitter, at Anirban Mahanti is the good doctor's Twitter account, at TMF Scott P is mine. 
And at The Motley Fool AU is our corporate account that I normally keep a half an eye on. Um, a couple of other teams do as well, but you'll, you'll often get me on that one. Uh, if you are on Instagram, and why wouldn't you be? It's at TMF Scott P or at The Motley Fool AU. And if you're on Facebook, The Motley Fool Australia, exactly what it says on the tin, and I'm Scott Phillips Money. Uh, Doc, what's your MySpace account? Did My you- MySpace account is... Uh- MySpace. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't yet have a my, maybe by next week, Ajit. Doc will have a MySpace. Uh, don't, hold, don't hold your breath. Don't hold your breath. And of course, if you do want to follow our updates on Treasury Wine Estates, one of the very best ways to do it is join the service I run, Motley Fool Share Advisor, which has Treasury currently as a buy recommendation. We do tend to eat our own cooking at the Motley Fool. You can go to fool.com.au forward slash SA podcast and get a special deal on Motley Fool Share Advisor, which will give you access to all of our current and past recommendations, every single buy and hold recommendation we currently have, you can get access to straight away, plus one recommendation every single month for the duration of your membership. It is not quite as cheap as doc service, but still very, very good value. Inexpensive, is that what you'd agree to call it? Oh, it's, 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 it's a great service at a good price. Very high value. Yeah. <laughs> Fool.com.au forward slash SA podcast. Now, I'm going to assume you subscribe more over time. So... Let's go straight to, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back, surprise, surprise, on Sunday with another dose of foolish insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.